Welcome to another special edition of Strategy Talk. This is the second episode where we explore Jim Dunnigan's contributions to commercial and military wargaming. In this episode, we focus on Jim's activities from the mid-60s to the late 60s. Welcome, Austin and Jim, and we have our special guest with us today, uh, Al Nofi. We're going to continue talking about Jim's history in wargaming and his exploits there. Jim, when you got out of the Army and you had done a little bit of wargaming, you had actually done your first game design too while you were there right you did something called deployment which will later yeah, put up in yeah, the I, test I, series I, I i worked out the the technique as it were for calculating the effectiveness of various you know uh, ar- yeah, armor artillery infantry and cavalry and uh i don't know why that was so difficult but like anything else once you've done it the first time it gets easier and easier um now i did this in complete isolation from any other designers uh, the, uh, I didn't find out till later that the, uh, Avalon Hill at that time, uh, I think in 64, I got out of the army. They only had two guys designing games, Larry Pinsky and, uh, what's his name? Uh, Lindsay Schutz. Hmm. Uh, Larry, I let her made. He, he was a, he became a, a, a PhD physicist and actually got written up a couple of times in the media. In one case, the New York times front page. Uh, and, you know, for his work on anti-gravity or gravity in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had his own airplane. And one, one weekend he flew up to New York from t- Texas where he was living and working and just wandered into the, uh, you know, the offices, which he had apparently found out were open 24-7 pretty much. Uh, there, were enough, there were more than one key holder, as it were. And that one case where the honor system worked. And... Um, of course, I was there, and uh, the uh, there were half a dozen other guys doing this or that. And in the walks, Larry Pinsky. I says, "Larry, glad to meet you." And we we schmoozed. Um, I, uh, I I actually put him in touch with Steve Patrick, who was writing a history of war gaming for one of the two books we published in '77. Uh, what the hell was that? The uh, War Games. I had a copy here. Uh, war games design or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, geez, I had a copy. Yeah, anyway. I think I've got my copy over here. War game design is what it was called. Yeah, and uh, it, it included a lot of useful information which I'd forgotten. Um, but anyway, what happened back in the '60s was <clears throat> Al Nofi and well, I, I I had already knew about Avalon Hill Games when I was in the army, uh, <clears throat> and, and that was it. And they only had a couple in 62, I think it was, when I was down at Redstone Arsenal going to the, the rocket school, as they say. <laughs> um, and uh, they didn't tell me I had to work on nuclear weapons as well, but that's another story. The, um, uh, they had a couple of them down there in the recreational center, which was open 24 hours a day because they were, they were running the courses 24 hours a day. And if you were on the day shift, then you got to hang out for a few hours there. And a lot of guys, a number of guys, I saw playing you know, these war games. And I sat down. I said, well, this is interesting. Well, it makes sense. You know, it, that was a basically the rocket school was the school for the overeducated or at least over technically in, inclined. Um, and even guys who weren't interested in the games could understand them. I said, oh, isn't that interesting? Uh, and the um, uh, but when I got out of the army, uh, the Battle of the Bulge came out. Uh, when was that? 65, 66, something like that. Uh, or 64. Uh, I think Larry Pinsky did that. 
uh, and I noticed some, you know, some, how should I put it, anomalies. Because at that time, I was doing research on World War II, and I discovered the World War II Records Branch, which was open to the public. Anybody could wander in. <laughs> that didn't last, but anyway, they had all sorts of original documents, in, you know, in hundreds of, of uh, filing cases, filing ca- uh, cabinets, and it was a gold mine. And among the many documents they had was the uh, German uh, order of battle in German. Fortunately, I was studying German in school at the time, so I could understand as, as, as long as it wasn't in fractor, that's the old-fashioned, you know, alphabet that they, they, the Nazis were so, uh, you know, in love with. Um, uh, but this was a document that was published after the war, or during the war on a typewriter, which didn't use fractor, so I, I was able to make it out. Um, and this actually that this document later was, was used uh, in when they finally did a book on the Battle of the Bulge, you know, years later in the 70s or something like that, which was an excellent you know, work. Um, but anyway, so I wrote a letter to uh, to uh, Tom Shaw. I said, look, I was then in D.C. doing some historical research and I yeah, yeah, yeah. told him about the World War Two records. Of now, as far as I know, it this didn't get Larry Pinsky chewed out. He was a high school student at the time. Uh, you know, so this <laughs> just sound familiar. And um, and they had they had no, you know, support staff down there. There was Tom Shaw and it was in the warehouse. And he actually invited me to stop by and visit the next time I was in D.C. So I quickly scheduled another trip <laughs> before I really intended to go down. And, you know, the, the railroad was fairly cheap in those days. And um, I walked in. He showed me. I showed him some of my research and what have you. And uh, and uh, we discussed games in general. Then out of nowhere, he says, you know what Jutland is? No, I really didn't. I mean, vaguely. But not in detail. I says, yeah, I was in a naval battle in World War One. That I, I was, I was partly grasping for straws, but I figured, what the hell? Because what I'd seen at the World War II records branch was people calling in, usually military people, but also academics, uh, asking a question. There was no, they they were the internet in those days, <laughs> and uh, so I I was I was I'd be I'd be going through some documents, and there'd be a guy at a desk of one of the guys who works there, and saying. Uh, some of the blah, 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 blah. He says, uh, wait a minute. And he pulls open, quietly, he pulls open a folder and and starts going, now, let me think. I would think about that. And, he, and he's basically BSing for about 30, 60 seconds. And he says, oh, now I remember. And he starts reading off you know, from the uh, the document, which is apparently a hot item. I forget what it was uh, on World War II history. Um, and I saw them do that a couple of times. So I picked up on that. It says, you can fake it for maybe 30, 60 seconds. Then you better have something. Um and uh, just by saying I knew about it, Tom then, you know, unwittingly played his role. He says, yeah, nobody's ever done a game on the bat- that, 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 that epic battle, you know, uh, between, you know, between the, with, the German, with the Germans. And now it started. I said, yeah, now I remember it. I mean, not in any sort of detail. He says, could you do a game on that? Now, he had just finished explaining to me their system was to... For each new game, they would base the rules, the new rules, on the rules of the previous game. And I did know that, you know, I did know about Fred T. Jane uh, <clears throat> because I'd already run into other war gamers and, you know, miniatures and things like that. And I explained, well, Tom, you know, this this really wouldn't work uh, as a as a as a uh, 
uh, as a traditional game because you have to, I mean, you did Midway, and I think they did, uh, I don't know if they did Sink the Bismarck. Yes. I said, it's like Midway or Sink the Bismarck, but when you get down to the tactical level, which you have to do, which you didn't have to do at Midway, you know, in their Midway and their um, uh, uh, Sink the Bismarck, which was a wise decision because it would have it would, it would have made the game much more complex without really adding anything to it. And I already admired, you know, and this was Pinsky and Schutz, uh, their ability to basically, you know, get down to the basics. The problem was they were working with, you know, available open sources. They apparently used maybe a local university. I never, again, I never asked Larry his exact, you know, process for doing it. But I just told him I admired the results. And I think we discussed briefly my World War II records branch. And he says, yeah, I couldn't get down there. I didn't even know that place existed. Um, uh, and I forget how I found out about it. But anyway, the... Um, I explained to Tom that you had to have a tactical level as well as a strategic level because it was a two-level battle. First, the two fleets had to find each other, and that might not have happened. <clears throat> I mean, again, I, at this point, I was, I was, I was, uh, how should I put it, relying on World War II naval history, uh, which before radar wasn't very much different from World War One, and I says. Uh, and I knew that the battle, the battle fleets, you know, went off, went off in columns and what have you. And it was still back, basically, you know, um, uh, you know, Trafalgar all over again. Uh, those admirals would have recognized it. Um, so I said, you know, it'll have to have uh, like miniatures with all ships, except we can't have die cut counters. And I says, I think that will appeal <coughs> to the gamers. And as far as the, you know. Using a ruler, we can include one uh, with yards on it, so to speak, instead of inches. Uh, it, they don't have to be exact, you know, but they have to be close enough. And they'll both be watching each other for any, you know, obvious, you know, cheating or anything like that. Mm. And I said, you know, I mean, I, I've been – and now I, Al and I and a bunch of other local gamers had established the, the Friday Night Follies down in my place in Brooklyn. And uh, – that was 64, 65. So, so that, that started before uh, oh, yeah. SPI. Okay. Yeah. In fact, SPI came out of that because what, what we were doing, I was inventing all these new techniques for writing game rules and organizing them. You know, Redmond Simonson, you know, gets credit for perfecting it. <laughs> He's much more, you know, of a rigid organizer than I am. But I came up with the same, the original basic idea because I, 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 I took that bit of wisdom from Tom, which made sense. You know, in most cases, a game will be able to use the same rules format and a lot of other stuff, CRTs, uh, than previous ones. And at that point, you know, if, I think even before we started SPI, I was talking about, uh, you know, game systems that might apply to a lot of games while others might only apply to one. Uh, for example, I, th I think in, in CA, the, the, the World War II uh, uh, ship uh, uh, game, that used a lot of uh, uh, the tactical stuff, but we did it on, we were able to do it on, uh, on hex sheet. I, I, you know, I wasn't going to send people back to the, I, I, I've been told I ruined a lot of knees um, because people, you know, <laughs> crawling all over, you know, hard surfaces or whatever um, uh, with their little ships. But it turned out that that was a very popular uh, we made up, 
Oh, uh, yeah, we Xerox the uh, uh, the the you know the from the Jane's fighting ships. They had these black and white, you know, side and and top, and we basically xeroxed them out and made it and improvised uh, with the name of the show, and then copied those, and then we basically put them on a shirt, uh, cardboard. You know, you get shirts back in those days. You went to the the uh, the laundry and they do your shirts and and they have give it to you on card with the folded with the cardboard. So anyway, that proved very useful. I a lot between us, we always had a good supply of that stuff. And we'd apply let, uh, rubber cement and let it dry, and they just cut it out. Uh, that's before we started die cutting, getting die cutting counters. So that, been, that, that was adequate. Uh, we were able to get the art from somewhere, Xerox it, uh, arrange a master, and bingo. Redmond, when I finally met him, he was impressed by that, you know, how well we improvised. Uh, and of course, he could do it much better, but he saw, hey, this is the, the basic idea is there. Um, the, uh, uh, so Tom got his juggling game, which, which proved more successful than he, uh, than he, than he believed. Um, and in part that was because people <laughs> literally, they got attached to the ships. I mean, there's something about the romance of the ships in general, but especially battleships. I'll never forget one play testing session, uh, where a guy, I think he was playing the Germans and he, he was, he was in a mood, as it were of the grosser Kerferus, one of their major battleships. And it was getting hammered. And he says, look, I'll give you these two other battleships if you don't stick my grocery curve first. I mean, you can't do that. But, but the kid was really into it. You know, and I never, I, I forget who exactly who it was. He, he probably doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be attached to that particular story. Maybe he does. But that was quite common. You know, people would get, you know, attached, as it were, involved with their various units. And uh, and with ships, it was it was very individualistic. It wasn't just yeah. a little square representing yeah. battalion or a division. Right now, one of the aspects of Jetland that hadn't been in other games was that you could actually have teams on either side running the ships, right? Because I was yes. li- I was listening to. Herman talk uh, in an interview, and he was talking about how he, he and his brothers uh, would get down and and play it in the you know the living room in the kitchen and like that. And but you know they'd have they'd end up with multiple people on each side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that a it, it lessened the workload, but secondly, and I don't know if anybody did this. If you play a double blind, you had scouting units uh, which were were. Uh, very much independent, and but the main units they tried to uh, maintain radio silence because even then, uh, the uh, the technique of, uh, of 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 finding uh, an enemy ship by triangulating its transmissions was available. Uh, so they were using the old semaphores, you know, the guys with the flags and what have you, and or putting flags up on the mast. You know, which was a code. So when they were when they were ordering, you know, line ahead for prepare for combat, uh, you just run up the right flags, and all the ships would see that and said, "Okay, boys, here it comes." Um, the uh, uh, the British were probably uh, better, if not least as good as the Germans in that department. Unfortunately, the Germans were better in the engineering department. Their ships didn't blow up as quickly as the uh, British ships did, and the British noticed that during the battle. I think it was uh, BD, the head of the uh, scouting division, said something wrong with our ships today. Uh, well, it wasn't just that day, but anyway, the uh, we put that all into the game, 
Uh, and I think we had an article that went in the game. There was, they were, you know, with the rules. Again, that was something that presaged what SPR, what S&T began after we got it. Now, back to the Friday Night Follies in Brooklyn. Uh, using the Avalon Hill General, which I think that started in 64, 65, it caught on real quick. And remember, this is before the Internet. Uh, you basically had the right letters and stuff like that, or pick up a telephone, which is very expensive. <laughs> there was no, you know, practically free, you know, uh, long distance. It was a very different world. And, um, uh, but we collected, I guess, maybe at least a dozen guys. Uh, you know, there were some regulars, but there was at least a dozen people came through on Friday nights at, uh, at my place. Uh, and I had the, the, the uh, my apartment looked out on the, on the first floor, uh, roof of you know, the building. It was the first the first floor extended further in the back of the uh, lot uh, than the second floor did. And we get out there, and I tell them, look, just don't bang around. Don't create any you know holes in the roof or anything like that. It will be good. And we tested the uh, Jutland as well as the von Richthofen, whatever it was, the uh, the World War II and aerial game. Another one which made quite would which made use of uh, I think slightly larger counters with the uh, top down view of the of the aircraft with its name and its stats, and that yeah. was that was very popular. Uh, yeah. Now anyway. this is where you you met Al is on the. Yeah, it was Al. Al and I were the first two. I think he might have gotten in touch with me. Well, one of the uh, one of the, uh, uh, what I, happened I was. Victor, it was either Victor or uh, Dingman. Yeah. Um, we're already working with you. And I had done an article in the general. And one of them called me and said, why don't you come to so-and-so? He's doing Avalon Hill's next game. Well, they may have heard of it. Yeah. Well, no, they, like, were, you, they were with you. No, I'm pretty sure you were the first one to, to come over. No. And oh, then bing, 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 and then and yeah. then the others were notified, and we decided, well, why don't we try and test these games? Because that was the beginning of what we called for a while the Game of the Week Club, because I'd really gotten going, and I was turning out a lot of these games. These became the test series games. Right. Uh, now, when I had designed, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Juddling came out in '67, and that did so well uh, with with reorders. I mean, that's what really impressed Tom. Uh, they immediately signed me up to do another game on World War One. I. I thought that was really pushing it because even though it was the what the 50 year anniversary or something like that, uh, it was a slog fest. I mean, you know, the even even Jutland was was a one off. Once the Germans found out they couldn't, you know, uh, beat the British on the high seas, they just basically stayed in port for the rest of the war uh, as a threat. Um, the um, uh, I. Basically, you know, sort of boom, 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 more, more games, um, and this was one of the attractions of the Friday Night Follies because until then, well, as still then, there was only one or two war games a year coming out from Avalon Hill, uh, and that's when people I heard so many people complain, why can't there be war? And that's where the idea of SBI came from. Now, during the '60s, uh, I ran into other war gamers like uh, Phil Orbanes. Now, Phil was from Ohio, um, and uh, he uh, he actually started a game company called Game Science. He got it first before he sold it to uh, Luzacci, who was another. He was he was Air Force too, I think. Yeah. He was an air controller, yeah, uh, down in Mississippi or someplace like that. 
again, we were getting in touch with each other by mail. I mean, that sounds so archaic, so old-fashioned. You actually wrote, or in my case, I usually typed uh, letters, but that's how it went. Uh, and so, you know, things moved a little more slowly. Another character uh, you met during this time was Jerry Purnell, right? I never met Jerry. Okay. I knew of Jerry. And Jerry yeah. knew of war games. Yeah. Right. And he wrote about it. And I think that's what might have connected me and Al. It was something what Jerry might have said. Somebody, because it was basically the the um, uh, the general was basically uh, gamers sending in, you know, articles. And right. Unless they, unless they and if they were reasonably well written and what have you, and there was no obvious, you know, uh, libel or, or flaws and what have you, they'd publish them. So it was wide open. And there was also a letters section. Which again proved a method uh, for people getting together. Now, the problem was they didn't take any advertising in the general, so you couldn't buy ads. And this is what killed uh, the strategy and tactics uh, magazine without a game in it that Chris Crawford started in what sixty three, sixty four. Uh, he was based in Japan with frequent trips to uh, Vietnam. He was a he was a Chinese linguist. And he would fly an aircraft over Vietnam, sometimes North Vietnam or parts of North Vietnam, uh, and translate in real time any Chinese language uh, chatter that they picked up, which I guess proved useful because <laughs> a couple of times his, his aircraft came back with holes in it. But anyway, uh, he was getting tired of that because it, it was dangerous. Uh, and he was he was far he was far away. I mean, his home base was Japan. But he managed to he the the cost of printing, uh, producing a, a a glossy magazine, which was I don't know what they twenty four thirty two pages, the a strategy yeah. and tactics. Yeah. Uh, it's like less than half of what it was in the United States, which he discovered when he got back to the United States. Um, and also, he had some guys over there in the Air Force, one in particular, who helped him out. But once he once he went back and I get he got out of the Air Force, he lost all that. You know, they they weren't in the same base or even, mm -hmm. you know, what have you. So he, he lost the support thing and he realized that uh, he, he couldn't make a go of it. Uh, it just wasn't economically feasible. Now, at that point, I was uh, Phil Orbanes was publishing games. I forget the names of them, but some of them are pretty good. Well, one was um, uh, Spitfire or it was a it was a it was a, it was a Battle of Britain game. And Battle he did Britain. a Battle of Britain, right? Yeah. And he did a, he did a couple others. They were all quite good. The problem is, again, he couldn't make his nut. He couldn't make it. He couldn't make it at least break even, much less profitable, um, because he didn't have distribution. And Avalon Hill wasn't going to give that to anyone. Uh, so the key to the success of a a a second war game company was a Chris was willing to sell strategy and tactics to me. Well, at that point, I'd incorporated a. Uh, let me let me get back. Phil Orbanes, who was in New York, where I forget where he was working. He was working some other management job. He he got into business school, but he was a hardcore war gamer from the minute he found out about him in the late fifties, early sixties, um, and uh, he uh, had made a deal with Ravel, the people who made the plastic models. I don't know if they still do. Uh, they were interested in his Battle of Britain game, and they were going to do a tie-in. And he basically sold it to them, or they bought all of his games uh, in return for royalties. Unfortunately, they never sold enough of the games to generate sufficient royalties. Again, 
a very valuable business lesson Phil learned and a mistake he never made again. He eventually became a, a, a senior um, uh, management in uh, in Parker Brothers up in Boston um, and wrote several books on Monopoly, of all things. Uh, but anyway, I sort of stayed in touch with him over the years. The last time I saw him, I, guess, I think it was in the 90s. Um, anyway, he um, he had this shell, all that was left of his original Game Science Corporation, I think he sold that, that name off to uh, Luzachi. So he had the underlying corporation, ODC, Operational Design Corporation, something like that. He basically put that forward as a corporate shell for the Poltron Press, which was not a corporation. It was a DBA, doing business as, and it was basically me. Now, I, at that time, before we published our first edition, that was Strategy and Tactics 18, the first issue with a game there. Now, uh, my understanding is you incorporated or SBI was started, right? Yeah, but it was incorporated as a separate corporation in 1970. I'll get to that in a second. Oh, okay. All right. And all right. Things, right. Moved, things moved fairly quickly in the late 60s. Right. For one thing, I was about to graduate from Columbia. That was taking up a lot of my time. Plus, I had a, a job as a night watchman, which, which was actually a bonus because I had computers, typewriters, all sorts of you know uh, office uh, hardware that I put to good use. Yeah, there, anyway, there's, a, there's a story about uh, you and Columbia about them dragging you out of uh, the library to finish Jetland for them. But, you know, I'm sure it's apocrypha, but, uh, Me? but, oh, no, uh, no. no, to finish, finish Jetland. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I did research and I got a stack pass. You could buy one, uh-huh. uh, go into the stacks. And that's where I did a lot of my research, but actually I did most of my research for Jutland over at a library that you didn't need a stack pass for. They had a, uh, a department of uh, naval engineering and whatever. Um, and that was open to anybody. Who okay. there. And that's why they had all the Janes going back to, you know, 1890s, whenever he started it. All sorts of books on on, on warship construction and, and what have you. So that was a gold mine. But for, for 1914, I needed the stack pass. In fact, SPI maintained that stack pass until I left. Other you know, guys could use it. Uh, and which they did quite heavily, um, uh, you know, it was like sharing a Netflix account. Uh, and um, uh, in the in the late sixties, so we had, I got, uh, I I realized after doing, I had to provide the artwork for uh, the nineteen fourteen game, and that was a bitch because I knew nothing about you know graphic art. Uh, so that, that, I, you know, I, I put together a, an ad hoc team and what have you, and we did it, but I, yeah, they ended up having to redo a lot of it. And he was unhappy about that. Um, but he was expecting a lot. I mean, it would have worked better if he'd had an uh, art, they had art artist facilities down there at, uh, at Avalon Hill, the, the company that owned them. Um, and, uh, that's how they did their games before they decided to try and farm out everything to like me. Um, so I, I basically lucked out on that because uh, that soured the uh, that pissed off somebody. Maybe you know Tom's boss. I never asked him about that, but he didn't ask me for a third game. He went to uh, at my suggestion uh, to what's his name up in upstate New York. Um, the guy who did Anzio. Uh, but anyway, um, the uh, and he did a he did a couple more games. Uh, but again, he was just another gamer, very bright guy. Uh, I heard about him. Uh, and in those days, you know, we, we, you know, it wasn't the paranoid corporate, you know, operations you see today. It was very, we shared. 
which was wise because something. The, the Tom Olson was that the name? Huh? Tom Olson. No. Olson. No, David Williams. Yeah, that's, that's it. Okay. Williams. Anyway, so I realized if I'm gonna if we're gonna uh, uh, start a magazine, that was the plan. I could get this magazine for nothing, but I I assume the liability. The subscriber liability, which was several thousands of dollars, uh, it was it was it was no small piece of uh, change, you know, for us because we were all broke. Um, so, well, actually, I wasn't that broke because I was I was at that point I was I was sucking in big royalties from uh, uh, Jutland and uh, 1914. That's how that's how I was able to move to Manhattan uh, in sixty. What was that? Sixty-eight. Um, anyway. The uh, but we always did things on a shoestring. So I basically uh, got in touch with um, uh, with Redman and invited him down to the office building, which I had all to myself. And, and how did you know about him? Uh, because he was the artist. He did art for the old strategy and tactics. Ah, OK. He had discovered that he was impressed and he was basically he had been in the Air Force Reserve and he had been he'd been uh, activated for a year or two. Uh, basically doing artwork. I don't think he ever left the country. Mm-hmm. Um, this again, this is the, uh, the the Vietnam thing. War was in full blossom uh, bloom. Uh, in fact, for a while, I was afraid uh, when it really when uh, Johnson started out. I was afraid they were making talk, talking about calling up the reserves. And in those days, you were in for two or three years, and then you well, you were in the in the inactive reserves for for. Uh, uh, two or three years until you your six year obligation was fulfilled, and the guy I, I shared the uh, the Brooklyn apartment with for a couple of years was in my unit. We decided we were both going. He wanted to go to New York to go to a, 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 an electronic school, and I was going to college to be an accountant. Anyway, he was there for about two years before he finished his course and went back to Indiana. Uh, but anyway, he um, uh, I realized that I needed uh, an artist, a, a really good artist. And I saw what Redmond was doing, and I brought him over to the uh, the the night you know headquarters. Uh, I was I was working from uh, midnight to eight a.m. and going to school by day, so wasn't a lot of sleep. Um, and uh, we sat down and talked. I showed him what I was doing because they graciously allowed me to have a filing cabinet back there, you know, uh, on the first floor to keep my you know research materials and what have you. Um, and I showed him what I was working on, and et cetera, et cetera. And I g- gave him my idea for the uh, the, sh- the new uh, strategy and tactics. He was interested, and I said, but he said, you know, he says, you know, he didn't make anything off the old strategies. I says, look, I'll give you half of the uh, of the uh, of the of the company because I figured, what the hell, it's not going to be worth much if it hasn't got good artwork. And I recognized Redmond as a as a first rate, you know, graphics artist. He had basically gone to Stuyvesant, which was a a, a test school still around in New York, where you had to basically and they have an art, a graphic arts, commercial art program as well as engineering and what have you. And you had to take a test to get into that. Then there was um, the, uh, the school down by um, uh, Christ, uh, another free college. Uh, which had been established, you know, back in the 19th century, which had an engineering uh, department and a and a commercial art department or an art department. And again, that was free. If you could pass the examination, which involved bringing in samples of your work and what have you, uh, it was free. So he was getting he was getting basically a, a free ride on talent, you know, all through high school and college. And um, 
I uh, basically convinced him. Uh, and uh, but on that first issue, I had to do the typography and the paste up myself. Now that I could handle. I, I've been doing some of it. And one of the things we had at my 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 place of work was electric typewriters with uh, typesetting capability. In other words, they had the special paper. And you could save it. I went out and bought a couple of the uh, cassettes, as it were, where they saved the information. And this is where I went in there and typed out the stuff um, and saved them and took them away so nobody was any the wiser. Um, and so I had the, the galleys that, you know, the, that for, you used to paste up. I pasted it up. And Redmond was impressed by this. I mean, he didn't see me as any competition. I, you know, I admit it, I'm an amateur, but this is the best I can do. And he says, well, we can do better. And, of course, uh, the bunch of us, I don't think Redmond was in on this, got down at my place on uh, East 7th Street uh, on the uh, Labor Day weekend in 69, and we assembled the uh, the magazines. I, I got the magazines printed. I won't say where. That's another, you know, semi-legal operation. Um, and I had to use a service to get them, you know, uh, uh, bound, you know, and, and whatever. Uh, but anyway, we had them. The uh, the game uh, was on a uh, was was not a full size map. It was just like eleven by seventeen, uh, you know, uh, uh, piece of paper. And uh, there was no cardboard. There was no die cut counters. There was a counter sheet, and I gave them instructions. I said, "Look, get some some uh, you know uh, rubber cement and some basic cardboard, and bingo, and you cut them out, and, and you're in, in business." The the thing was. This issue, I forget what it was. It was a buck or two or something. It was, you know, by today's standards, it was like six bucks. Although war game magazines and and games published, and there are some still some games published in magazines, they cost a lot more, even accounting for inflation, than they did in, uh, you know, back when we were starting out. And the reason for that is uh, you can produce a much smoother, much slicker product. Um, uh, and you basically can calculate even before you you uh, you uh, you uh, finish it and produce it how many you're going to sell. It's become a real system. Uh, that's something that I did. Well, I sort of invented, but you know, uh, they it was perfected after I left the business, uh, and that's kept you know half a dozen or more small war game publishers uh, going right into the 21st century. But back then it was all new. Nobody but Avalon Hill was doing it. Uh, well, Phil Orbanes had done it, but he had again. He found out it was it was too expensive. Uh, but we worked out ways where we could do it cost effectively if we could get enough subscribers. Now the trick was, all right, we had strategy and tactics. We had oh I don't know it was a thousand or so subscribers because basically we put this into the mail. We all of us you know once we finished got them in the envelopes, put the postage on them, what have you. We 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 uh, basically dispersed all over the Lower East Side, stuffing these envelopes in mailboxes, literally. So it was an interesting weekend. Um, that's how the first issue. And those guys that are involved is me, Al, a bunch of other guys, Fred Schachter, what have you. These are all guys who basically stuck with SPI, you know, through the '70s in one capacity or another. They weren't all war game designers, but a lot of them were just you know gamers uh, who were glad to be you know making a living working you know at a war game company or a gaming company. Uh, and it was all educational, but the response to that issue 18 was phenomenal. I mean, nobody's seen anything like it before. I mean, Redmond saw that. I believe that. I mean, he said, what a deal. You know, if somebody was offering games, like I'd buy them. I'd already bought, a, you know, every, just about every Avalon Hill game there was. And so it seemed like a good idea to me. Uh, 
and nobody really thought of it before. So bingo, we had the uh, we were first, uh, and we ran with it. Uh, after that, after that first issue, he says, "Jim, you're not pricing up any more issues. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I'll handle the whole thing," uh, which Redmond did, you know, right up to the end, and um, and he did a bang up job. Uh, and uh, you know, the other trick that made it go was in addition to the publicity and word of mouth, literally, uh, you know, showing up in various newsletters. Again, Avalon Hill wouldn't even mention it. Uh, and I think that's something Tom was told from on high. Um, and uh, uh, so, but I did the, uh, among the bits of research I was doing was what I, what, which was called psychographics, not just demographics, but the uh, basically take into account lifestyle, psychology. What did people do? And I, I started in the with S with the early issues of uh, S and T of including a page or so of feedback questions and, and a card, you know, in their postcard, you just to to get you know your responses. And a lot of them had to do with the demographics of the gamer, you know, age, education, injuries, and using available uh, advertising. Uh, industry data, which again you get from public libraries. Well, the big ones. There's a couple of big public libraries in New York and in New York City, and Manhattan, and um, and I bought some of the 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 uh, the, the books, as it were, that they uh, the uh, the, uh, the large uh, manuals, as it were. Uh, so I didn't have to go trekking up to the library every time I wanted to do a little research, and I was able to do an advertising program because. Not only did you have these advertising uh, publications uh, were catalogs, also gave the uh, the data, uh, the demographic data on subscribers to various newspapers and magazines. Uh, so you knew what even then, even before Google and what have you, you know, uh, uh, people buying advertising were looking for a specific demo. Uh, they would wanted to just reach the people who would were inclined or were already buying their particular product. Now ours was even more esoteric because one of the this this <laughs> disappointing things I found out early on was that less than ten percent of the total population had any interest at all in these historical games, and and board games were the most uh, uh, how should I put it uh, popular because wars you can understand. Uh, we tried a couple of, you know, non-war games. They can be done. We got better as the time went on. But basically, uh, people wanted to, you know, kill things uh, and settle it that way. And that's human nature, I guess. Be that as it may. Um, I set up this um, this advertising uh, program, which works extremely well. A lot of them were small publications. You know, some of them were big Scientific American, uh, New York Times Book Review, and what have you. But we rolled it out as we could. And and we were getting in these subscriptions as well as sales of the of the separate games, and of course once a game was published in the magazine, it was spun off, literally just put in another packaging and sold as a separate game. Uh, you know, if you just wanted the game and not the magazine and the game. Um, now, so do it you? Was, it was you, you. You did do games that were not in the magazine. Do you remember when you first did that? Well, we had those first. Those were the test series games. Okay. Back in 69, before we got could started. You, could you speak to those a little bit? Yeah, the test series games were games the, that were produced from the original Friday Night Follies in Brooklyn. Those were the born in Brooklyn games, shall we say. 
uh, and they were tested extensively. I mean, basically, the guys came, they, they, various gamers came down. What attracted them was they got to play a game nobody else had. Uh, you know, they were handmade, you know, copies and what have you. So it wasn't like you could just, you know, uh, hit copy on your computer and make a copy of it. Uh, so it was, it was, it was a rare uh, treat, as it were. For a war gamer, and they also got to make input, so that's why we always the play testers always got credits in the games and what have you. And somebody who was really you know hardworking, uh, we we'd say you're the developer. I mean somebody who would help re- rewrite the rules and what have you, and and uh, and uh, basically proofread stuff like that. So we invented the new nomenclature. There weren't editors. Well, there was an editor. One thing we finally ended up doing was we literally got an editor. We hired an editor from a technical publication uh, or a company that, that basically uh, put out scientific journals uh, who uh, who could understand war games. You know, he picked up on them real quick. Uh, what the hell was his name? He ended up going down to D.C. and working for some big, you know, uh, government uh, beltway bandits, you know, contractor. Uh, but anyway, uh and uh, so Redmond basically had this editor. He edited artwork, but he had a, 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 a rules editor who basically just went through the rules and said, hey, this doesn't make sense. I say, you know, basically what a copy editor does, but not just a copy editor, an editor editor. He says, this seems confusing. You might want to move it to here, move it to there. Um, uh, into the, uh, by the mid-70s, we had a, uh, a, 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 a computerized uh, microcomputer, you know, driven uh, typesetting operation right in house, uh, and you know the stuff was this was this was you know to, uh, you know that you know uh, uh, state of the art as it were. But the beautiful thing about it was Redmond figured out you could make up your own fonts, and he made up a font which consisted of all the symbols used in counters. You know, a huge array. I think you know, you you basically it was uh, you know dozens of uh, of, uh, of of uh, of uh, images, and so you he basically you could set like the instead of, instead of setting type for cop for for words, you could set uh, a uh, a layout for the um, the counters for the playing pieces. So you know, we were far ahead of anybody else in automation of all this this business, and when microcomputers came out. Uh, back in 77, I think we started getting those. Uh, they had a word processing program and bingo. We had a master copy of rules and the, the guys on staff instead of using typewriter, uh, they would basically, you know, uh, pound them out on the, with the word, whatever, not word, but, you know, uh, word star. I think that was one of the early ones. There was a whole bunch of early, uh, you know, first generation PC, you know, word processing programs. Uh, but we we could change them. They were quick to learn. And that saved a lot of work because you could basically, you know, you could do the basic functions of, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, cut, move, paste. And that really changed, changed the world as it were, made the work a lot easier. Now, some guys still kept doing it on a typewriter. Um, and I didn't force them to use the computers, but the guys who did, they got it. We also wrote, I uh, wrote programs. I, and several other guys, we wrote programs that generate, um, uh, come results tables, all sorts of results tables. And we had a master copy of that available. So, you know, basically we were automating as we went along, as technology became available, we would automate it. Uh, we had a micro, we had a mini computer for mainly for business purposes, but for example, uh, they said it couldn't be done. The guy from IBM, um, I got a couple of gamers who wrote a, a COBOL program, 
uh, to do uh, uh, what do you call it? Fraction? Ah, what the hell was it called? Uh, frequency analysis, which is basically a correlation analysis, but on a matrix. It took a long time to do, but it gave you all sorts of insights into into what was related to what. Um, and uh, we had to run the mini computer over the weekend to do that to each uh, each uh, edition of the uh, the feedback results. We get a couple hundred of these cards back, and uh, we had the kids, you know, type them up onto a uh, on, uh, those early on. We were using the eighty column. 96 column cards, and then we got where you could type them directly into a form on the computer, the terminal. But anyway, so you can see what we were doing here. We had a system that avoided error and allowed us to publish a lot of games uh, without a lot of risk. Because other publishers, even while we were doing this, there were a lot of other new publishers starting up, and they were quickly going bust because they didn't have a way to hey, they're, they're not, to cover their expense and have profit. It took us a few years. It wasn't until the mid-70s we were in the black. Uh, and we freely shared all this information. In fact, the, the, uh, the 1977 Wargame Design, I did a chapter there on the business of wargaming, and I basically laid it all out. And I had no, God knows how many guys came to me later and said, boy, that was, that was a big help. Uh, a few others muttered, boy, you gave me false hope. I got it in over my head. But anyway, more people were successful than not. Uh, just by following the the uh, techniques that we established. Anyway, so we had uh, Phil Orbanes was thinking of getting involved, but eventually he took the job with Parker Brothers up in uh, uh, in in Boston, and he basically backed out. He didn't you know we didn't have to pay him off or anything like that. It was just the experience he felt was pretty good. Good man. And um, but at, at the same time, we got mixed up with an advertising agency, a guy named Renee Vidmer. Now, this is 1970 early. We were still, you know, basically scraping by. Uh, you know, we were short on capital, as it were. So we basically had to pay, pay as we went. Um, and uh, Rene Vidmer, he never put any money, but he basically proposed a, uh, him involved in a, in a corporation. But he could, he could never get the money. So he bowed out uh, for a while. He was gonna, and at that point, it was just, you know, uh, me and Redmond, and we basically gave points I think we ended up with 40% each, and we gave in chunks of points to various other people. There was uh, um, uh, John Young is a, a CPA. Uh, there was, uh, what's his name, from, from uh, Steve Patrick, a lawyer, uh, and a couple of other people. And, uh, and this is the crew that basically took, you know, the uh, you know, SPI to its heights. But it all started in that maybe two-year period when we were inventing our future, as it were. And that's how Tom Shaw came back and said, gee, Jim, you know, you're doing great. He recognized it. And his boss, Eric Dott, who owned the company that owned and Avalon Hill, uh, he noticed it. And he says, see if you can, you know, make a deal with these guys. And, and, and Mark, Tom and I were never on bad terms. We were always the best of buds. Um, but, you know, any, any business decision he wanted to make, he had to get past Eric. Um, so finally, I said to him, I said, look, I'll tell you what. Uh, I, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse, or I mean, Eric can't refuse. <laughs> I says, you know, we get feedback on every new game in the magazine, and those are the games that sell the most, at least the most people, because at that point we were over up to 10,000, 15,000 subscribers. We peaked at about 35,000. And I says, I will, we publish those results anyway. But anyway, if you see a game that you like, uh, uh, you know, uh, we will uh, let you 
basically do it or for a fee, depending on the, how much royalty you want to pay. Uh, Redmond can do the artwork. And he was impressed by Redmond. And the first thing to go through that process was um, Panzerblitz, which was published in the magazine as Tactical Game 3. We were doing a whole series of Tactical Yeah, I, I'd sort of like to get back to those test series games because I'm just curious. How did you – those were not part of S&T, right? They no, were. They you got people to subscribe to be playtesters in, in essence. Well, that was always the case. Although we did, I did have standards. I mean, whenever the new issue came out, everybody knew that I would take it home and I would sit down, you know, when it was quiet, nobody could bother me. And I would try and play the new game. Now, that was the acid test. I basically trusted everybody. They knew, they knew what the, the, the company you know policy was. You did your best. Now, we had a couple of disasters. Uh, and you know, there was no doubt that, that who, people had screwed up and I let them know. In fact, in one case, it, they screwed up so bad. I won't name names, uh, that there was no game that was supposed to be a, a magazine game. And before it even got to the point, the, you know, the art department, the editor down there, you know, he, he called me, he says, Jimmy says, this is not going to work. There's no way we can salvage this in time. So what I did literally was I sat down, and within 12 hours, I generated a publishable game, publishable game overnight. That was, was that Battle for Germany, I think it was? Yeah, with that the, the, you were playing both sides. Each side, each guy, each player was playing both sides. Um, and that was extremely popular. Now, I had the idea pumping around, but it was nothing more than an idea. I never put anything down on paper. But we had our library at that point. This was 75 or 76. And... Uh, and I don't think we told you know our customers until it was all until it was all over. They were they were hey, this is a great game. I says yeah, it was done in twelve hours from start to finish. I mean literally when sun came up, I finished typing up the the first draft of the rules, and I turned it over. I said now you got a place. I said, I picked the developer. You can go back and see if you have a copy of the game who the developer was. Uh, and I said all right test the shit out of it but it was a straightforward design it was easy to develop because there weren't too many you know it was it was building on on existing technology as it were uh and it was just that insight of the two players you know the closing in on germany basically what it was was one player would command the allies uh on the you know on the on the western front and the germans on the eastern front and the other player would would play the you know the russians and then the Germans on the Western Front. And that, that provided a, a type of competition you rarely see in a war game. But it was, it, was, it was that situation. And that's what we were able to do. A lot of gamers, one thing I realized very early on, when you got a room full of gamers, you know, I could not say I was the smartest guy in the room, even though I was the, you know, I was the, the, the most uh, accomplished war game designer. Because there, I said, look, there are a lot of you guys in this room hall, whether it was at the convention or whatever, that could probably do a better job than I did. And a lot of them eventually did. But a lot of them just didn't want to be bothered. I mean, it was work. They had jobs. They were going to school and what have you. But uh, this is when you developed the concept of uh, you've said it several times, which is the game is the game. Well, right. yes. Yeah, that was a favorite uh, clip of mine of, of Mark Herman. He says, once you get the basic game, and this was in the War Games Handbook. This is on the one that's available free online. Right. Uh, and uh, that was the second edition, I think. Uh, the uh, Basically, I, I describe it. I says, look, once you have – it's a three-part process. First, you do your research. You think, you think, keep it in your head, and then you do a quick and dirty prototype. Now, the more experienced the gamer you are, the more 
finished the prototype will be. I mean, that's what I did with the Battle for Germany. <laughs> that prototype, baby, you know, was could literally have been published in 48 hours. You know, if you had enough playtesters in there to play the crap out of it. Because it was a simple game, didn't take long to play. Players loved it. Uh, you know, it was just one of those, you know, games that had a, a mechanic, as it were, a, 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 a MacGuffin, uh, a, a, an element that just made it fun to play. And, and it was, you know, you learned something about World War, you know, uh, the end of World War II uh, politics as well. The, um, uh, the players, uh, you know, realized that, you know, if they wanted to, you know, go and publish war games, the tools were there. They, because the, once you had a prototype going, I said you start playtesting, get as many playtesters as you can. Uh, at, at that point, late 70s, uh, a lot of guys had PCs, you know, Apple came out, yeah, there, was, there, was, there, were, there were word processing programs. That saved a lot of the work because a lot of uh, war game rules was revisions, editing as it were. Right. Uh, and that saved people a lot of, a lot of work. And, they, and you could do a lot much better job. You know, people would get tired retyping, you know, the, the rules again and again and again. Um, so that was great for morale. Um, but once you got at that point, once you started, once you got, once you started working the prototype, it was talking back to you. You knew what the if it's a historical game, uh, you knew what was supposed to happen. So that was keeping you honest. And even for these these near future games, which again was suggested to us by a bunch of guys down at the Army Infantry School at Fort Benning. Right, that would have been Red Star, White Star was exactly. one of the first yeah, ones you did. 73, and that thing sold, I mean, Scott, I didn't realize there was that much more. I mean, it was and stupid in, in retrospect, but people, there were a lot of people who were interested in, you know, the current affairs. In fact, we realized that games like that were over 20% of the, of the people buying them were people working for the government. I'm talking State Department, CIA, military, you name it. For them, it was professional literature uh, and more powerful, as I later found out, than anything, you know, in book form. Um, anyway... The, uh, we spread the gospel, as it were. We spread the knowledge of what we had learned. And that's used to this day. Uh, because with all these tools, you know, people like you know, Mark Herman and uh, uh, Richburg and, and a whole bunch of other people, uh, they could basically push, you know, the, the envelope of what you could do in a simple manual game. Uh, you know, it, to to greater limits of of you know incapacity, incapacity, uh, uh, you know historical reality, information transfer. I mean, that's what it was all about. These things were going on that most gamers weren't aware of it. They would just say, "Boy, this was a this was a better game, easier to play." I, I they wouldn't even know that I learned more from it because it had 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 higher you know information, you know, learning, you know, uh, transfer. Uh, one of the games, one of the last games I did, Empires of the Middle Ages, you know, I even had academics coming to me saying, boy, this is great. But what they didn't realize was, you know, there was a, over a decade of developing games and uh, an input by a lot of guys who had, were not, you know, intimidated by, you know, books in different languages on medieval history and what have you. And we had we had academics coming in for the Friday Night Follies once they were, you know, in SPI offices. And they would sit down and talk. It wasn't just a lot of lawyers and, and high school, uh, lawyers, stockbrokers, and high school students or college students. Um, there were a lot of people who were in academia, and they, in fact, I later soon I found out that a lot of them were using games. Uh, and then they made the jump, the next jump, which I was, again, even preaching in the late 70s to the military in particular. You guys can do this yourself. You have people in any 
battalion or especially brigade who are war gamers. You just don't know it. Ask. And a lot of them did. At this point, I was I was going down to the Army War College once a year to lecture the that year's class on Wargaming 101. It was like, a, you know, an hour, 45 minutes and what have you. But uh, that's the one I got a lot of feedback from. They said, boy, you were right. You know, I, I got to my, I got my battalion or I got a brigade. These guys were headed for brigade command and higher. Uh, and they said, yeah, I was surprised how many guys we had. You know, you think the infantry, you know, ah, what are they? But it turns out there are a lot of college grads. This was uh, after the draft was gone. Uh, but as I, as I, <laughs> as I learned when I was in, in the early sixties, when the draft was still in play, there was a guy, I'll never forget. He had just graduated from Harvard and, uh, he was going airborne and I said, man, you don't have to go airborne. They, they take you, 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 I believe guys and give you a nice office job in the Pentagon. I says, no, he says, I'll have plenty of that. You know, when I go to law school and, and you know, become a lawyer, but it's just, this is the only chance in my life I'll have to jump out of an airplane with a gun with a license <laughs> to kill. Right. And that has not changed. Right. You know, since then. Yep. Uh, hey, so, any, so any airborne division basically a, a, an Ivy League club, as it were. We're about ready to wrap up the session. What I'd like to do is give Al some a chance to give I'm some sorry. input yeah. <laughs> input here. But I would just like Al. Tell us about how your working relationship started out with Jim. And the people listening probably don't realize this, but Al has been working with Jim for, I figured it out yesterday, uh, nearly uh, 44 years or 54 years, 54 oh, years. A, yeah, yeah, it's close to half a century. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but it, it I mean, most marriages don't last that long. <laughs> so we don't see each other that often. That's the secret. Is that the secret? So, Al, tell us a little bit about uh, working with Jim at the beginning of uh, of S and T and SPI, and and how you worked out your working relationship with him. In fact, I was on an interview the other day, Jim. Uh, you know, promoting what we were do we're what we're doing here, and I referred to Al as the secret sauce. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, true. So, Al, why don't you tell us uh, what you did with Jim and how you worked with him? Well, I started out um, at the Friday Night Follies at his apartment in Brooklyn, which is now uh, probably about a two thousand dollar a month place. Um. <laughs> uh, and uh, gradually got involved. Jim was publishing a series of little pamphlets. Remember the Comps? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I didn't like the name, but the guy who was pressing me on it was a uh, was a, uh, a, a a refugee who from Poland, whose father got you know beaten up pretty bad by the Nazis. Uh, if, you, if you go with it, if you insist, okay. But anyway, yeah. so uh, so I was going to do the. Uh, uh, I was doing already some miscellaneous stuff, and I was going to uh, uh, um, do the Waterloo pamphlet uh, and the and the North Africa pamphlet, I believe. And then uh, and then one day Jim came came to me and borrowed a hundred bucks. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to leave for Europe, and uh, Jim borrowed a hundred bucks from me. And uh, I had various adventures in Europe and and whatnot, and including being back. shipwrecked, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah that, <laughs> that, that's a long story. Yeah, that's a long story. But I know Jim uh, in in uh, the complete war gamer 
or the complete war games handbook, he uh, mentions that he was a little bit pinched because one of his main guys was shipwrecked when they were starting to do the test series games and like that. Yeah. yeah. So when I got back, I suddenly discovered that I was the research director of, uh, <laughs> what, what was it called? Was it still Poltron Press? Yeah. Yeah. yeah soon, it was Poltron Press. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, aside from wargaming stuff, Poltron Press published one um, published one uh, slim volume of poetry that I did for my students at uh, when I was teaching. Uh, anyway, um, so the, the 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 North Africa thing began to become the series of articles. I mean, Jim had hit upon a really important thing. To, to backtrack a second here. Um, lots of people are interested in military history, but not that many are interested in wargaming. So Jim turned s and from a wargaming magazine, you know, which was devoted to all kinds of wargaming, to a history magazine that was about wargaming. In effect, you know, they used wargaming to help explain history so that the idea was that even somebody who wasn't interested in wargaming might be interested in the magazine because we had this sort of analytical approach to uh, to how to, to presenting material to the point where West Point was using some of the articles in some of their classes. I don't know if you remember Colonel Hamburger. Remember him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, because he found that they were they were easier to use in explaining Napoleonic warfare or World War One or, or World War Two than some of the the, the heavy going textbook stuff. Especially since starting cadets frequently knew dilly about military history, and most people who wrote about military history wrote for people who already knew something. So, um, so then, you know, I started doing the articles. And at one point, I don't know what happened, uh, but I mentioned to Jim, you know, you ought to do a, a game about um, the revival of, of infantry during the Renaissance. And he said, well, why don't you do it? So that's where Renaissance of Infantry came from. <laughs> uh, but the thing that was most important, my, I'm not a very good war gamer uh, because I, I'm much more interested in, the, in what you can learn from from using games and especially from designing games about history. So we developed a good relationship. Like on Fridays, we'd, we'd sit down before Friday night follies. And, uh, we, you know, Jim would say, you know, for issue so-and-so, uh, thinking about doing this and this, and uh, it's going to be like, uh, sort of like, uh, I don't know, a campaign for North Africa, say, you know, Going to be sort of that system, and um, but it'll you know, and it'll have this many counters and whatnot, and you know, and, and we'd talk back and forth, and I'd take notes, and then I'd wander off to the library, and uh, and see what I could find, uh, and that worked out pretty well. Uh, you know, we we could preliminarily test it using the existing materials, and um, uh, so that went on for ages and ages, you know, and. And then, uh, because in the process of doing this, we ended up doing uh, FYI, because so much useless information that was interesting came available. Um, and, uh, and so one of the things I think that made the games particularly valuable was just 
the magazine was always for uh, useful for both people who were seriously knowledgeable about military history and for people who knew nothing. I mean, you pick up your ordinary book about anything, World War II, any any war, and they start off with an assumption that you know what you're what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting is uh, the first episode of this that we put posted up on YouTube is that we got feedback there. And one of the one of the comments was, I, I wish that the old S&T was around because the articles that are done today in the war game magazines are just not of the same quality that S&T did and information and like that. Um, of course, for the modern stuff, they can just come to the strategy page now. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, that I, I just picked up uh, a copy because I told you I'm doing some research on solitaire games like that. I picked up a copy of uh, The Fall of Rome, and you, Al, have written an extensive article in there on The Fall of Rome, which, uh, it, you know, it, you just don't see that same level of detail in some of these other wargaming magazines today. Uh, it seems like, and sometimes the articles aren't even very connected to the game that they're doing. So... Yeah. Well, again, that's editing. Uh, you know, the, 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 myself and Al and a couple other guys, we realized, you know, we knew what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And we developed this whole new uh, system of, you know, organizing the information using the game. For example, one of the most important things we lose sight of, most people lose sight of, and a lot of gamers, you know, who didn't play the games, but examined them, as it were, as, as a source of infantry, was the game organized everything that was going on. And one of the things that, again, we take for granted was one of the things, and one of the things we had to figure out was what are the victory conditions? Why are these people fighting? And in some cases, they had no reason for fighting. I mean, that was the Russian Civil War game, a perfect example of that. But the World War II game, the uh, or the Plan 17 game for World War I, uh, again, you had, you know, the one side was completely off the wall as far as their, their, their victory conditions were concerned, unwinnable. And the Germans was close enough, was was superior enough, as it were, that they almost won. But they did that mainly because the French had had basically lost sight of what exactly they were up to. Basically, the French were seeking revenge for their losses in the in the uh, Franco-Prussian War of 1870. But anyway, uh, that was the same thing with the Russians in, in contemporary wars. I would talk to people at the CIA, at the DIA, Andy Marshall's office about, you know, why would the Russians attack? Uh, now, this is all unclassified, but I was told to, you know, keep it quiet. Uh, and, and I didn't. So I was able to go back again and again and have these discussions. But what it really came down to, and this became obvious after the Soviet Union fell apart, the Russians didn't know why they were fighting. That one of the most humorous anecdotes, and I might have mentioned this last time, was Al Reem, who used to be the head of the uh, NATO, uh, you know, Soviet uh, Warsaw Pact. Uh, analysis in CIA before he went, you know, into private industry. Uh, he said they they have analysts over there in the in the Russian, you know, general staff, the Stavka, who have done studies at the at the behest of their superiors about tell me what will really happen, you know, mirror mirror on the wall. And again and again, these analysts would come back and say we'd lose. And these guys would be they wouldn't be in the old days to get a bolt in the head. They get sent off, you know, to comfortable exile in the in the in the cities in the Urals, the science cities and what have you, um, which kept them out of trouble and probably you know uh, saved their lives. But anyway, um, this was 
this is what war games did. You know, it clarified. We did games on Vietnam. We did games on, you know, what then were, you know, uh, sensitive subjects. And we were always able to basically say, all right, you know, man from Mars, uh, what's going on here? Who's doing what to whom? And again, in some cases, it clarified, well, these were the victory conditions. We also found out that victory conditions would change over time in some cases. And we build that into the game. Uh, we also had stupid rules like the Plan 17 rule to made the uh, the uh, what do you call it the uh, Battle for France game. I think yeah, it was Plan 17 for World War II. Anyway, the French had had stupid rules for both World War One and World War II. Yeah. Um, but they're not the only ones. I mean, everybody had you know uh, uh, you know situations where they had a bad case of the stupids, uh, and that exists to this day. And if you read strategy page, we examine it. We don't do it in the form of a war game, but we say, look, this is this is what's really going on. And this is why boom, boom, boom. Uh, this is why we have a lot of war gamers still, you know, uh, you know, uh, reading strategy page, even though it's not a war game, uh, because we use the same techniques for analyzing situations. And basically, if you've done it long enough, like Al pointed out, after a while, he was thinking in terms of a war game. Right. I was doing that. A lot of the other old timers, I think everybody involved in this conversation. And, and if, if, you know, I've just been, I'm almost finished up with Phil Sabin's book on simulating war, the, the professor uh, in England that does, the mm-hmm. war, he's a war studies guy, and he talks exactly about this. Of course, he praises you all over the place, Jim. I, <laughs> I don't know if you've read the book or not. But, no, I haven't. But, but uh, anyhow, uh, it's time for us to wrap up. Uh, I'd like to tease our next episode. So what will, so those of you that you can anticipate what we're going to be talking about next time, we're going to talk more about Panzer Blitz, but we're going to talk about the coopetition between uh, Avalon Hill and SPI before, you know, coopetition was coined as a turn. Yeah. Avalon Hill and SPI were doing it. And we'll talk about some of the games that weren't SPI games, but that Jim did for them, the uh, uh, outdoor adventure and, and some survival. of the oh, yeah, outdoor survival. A, yeah. That's a funny story. But yeah. Anyway, yeah. Good. Yeah. And so we'll be doing that. And then we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up uh, by talking about the Friday night follies and the, the number of great game designers that came out of SPI starting in the Friday Night Follies and then becoming employees and designers and like that. But also one of the things that people don't realize, Jim, is the number of people that came out of uh, that whole thing that went on to become uh, higher ups in the CIA, ended up being generals, ended up being uh, State Department, higher up in the State Department. And we'll try to bring up those people and and talk about that. And so that will be our third episode. And uh, I can't tell you guys. I, I'm so excited to do this. I was, I had a hard time going to sleep last night knowing we we're going to get to talk about some of this stuff. So it, it's been a great experience, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Okay. In four weeks. Okay. Take care. Bye.